sometimes we need a call bell. Now, uh, for example, I mean, this is, this is like the old hospitals. The newer hospitals, you get a button. Uh, once when I was a patient, I've only been a patient in a hospital a couple of times. I remember the first time I was in a, the first time I was, the first time I went to the hospital, well, okay, I had a heart attack. The EMTs came to pick me up. As they're wheeling me out of the house, they said, so when was the last time you were in the hospital? And I went, when I was born. <laughs> and they said, oh, wow, congratulations. Here goes your second trip. I'm going, I could have skipped it. Uh, it at that point, in that, that evening, I didn't realize how bad things were, apparently. Um, they stuck me in a room, and the nurses told me to call for help if I wanted anything. I, I said, well, I want a drink of water. Uh, don't reach for it. Push the button. We'll give it to you. Don't move your arm. Just push the button. I'm thirsty. I was amazed. They said, okay, here, let me help you. Apparently, I was having a heart attack. When you're having a heart attack, you're not supposed to do nothing for yourself. There are times when you need a little bell, a call bell, to ring for help. Some of us, though, treat prayer the same way. And there are times when we need to use prayer like a call bell, right? We're in trouble, and we need help. There's no doubt about it. I mean, can you imagine with me just for a moment, this is the night before Jesus died. Uh, he's had uh, dinner, the last, well, we call the Last Supper. It's the Passover meal, his last Passover meal with his disciples, the original disciples, can you imagine how they felt as he's talking to them and he just looks at them and goes, uh, hey guys, Satan is asked to sift all of you as wheat. Uh, Pastor Paul Decker, who, who's no longer with us, he's, he went to be with God a long time ago. Uh, he goes, how many of you know what happens when you sift wheat? You know what you're about to do when you sift wheat? You're going to grind it into flour, and then you sift it a little more, and then you bake it, and then you eat it. Hi, guys. Satan wants to chew you up. How would you like that kind of news? It was the night before his crucifixion. He knew what was coming, and Jesus warned them, and they all swore, all of his disciples, well, except Judas, because Judas had already left, the rest of them just swore undying devotion. We will follow you to the grave, Jesus. It doesn't matter what people do, we will be with you. That's when Jesus dropped that bombshell. Satan wants to pick you and your faith apart. 
wants to have you for a snack. How can Jesus' disciples stand the attack of evil spiritual forces? Well, how can any of us stand the attack of evil spiritual forces? Well, we're going to look at Luke chapter 22, verses 39 to 46. Um, <coughs> Jesus went out as usual, is what it says. Luke chapter 22, verses 39 to 46. This was shortly after um, Jesus dropped that little bombshell on his disciples. I'm sure they're somewhat stunned. Um, perhaps some of them trying to figure out what on earth does Jesus mean by this. Luke chapter 22, verse 39. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, I'm just going to warn you, I'm kind of skipping because I'm telling the story a little different than Luke did. When he reached the place, he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, and an angel appeared to him and strengthened him. Yes, it's going to get obnoxious. I just thought I'd warn you. Jesus, Jesus was definitely in a time and place where he needed to pray for help. So were his disciples. But they were sleepy. I have bad news for us. Satan still desires to pick Jesus' followers up. It wasn't just 2,000 years ago outside Jerusalem on the hip Mount of Olives. It's still true. Satan still wants to tear us apart. Our lives are filled with evil days and spiritual battles. Some of them are obvious and some of them uh, are not. Our enemy's primary goal is to pick apart our trust in God. That is our enemy's primary goal. The salt of darkness, evil, suffering, hardship, all of these things isn't really to get us to stop believing in God. It's not to try to turn us into atheists, but it is to get us to stop believing God. J.D. Wald is the, one who, the author who's helped me understand this. It, it is to cause us to stop believing God. There's a difference between believing in God and believing God. Uh, and I hope you can see the difference. It, it is an easy thing to believe in God. Lots of people believe in God. But it's an entirely different thing to believe God to trust God. We, the, the first to believe in God is just an affirmation of faith. Yes, I believe in God. Vast majority of people who live in the United States believe in God. 
and act like they don't. To believe God is actually what faith is. It's trusting God. J.D. Wells says, there are many who believe in God and yet whose hearts have really turned away from him. Many followers of Jesus, I, I, I've noticed many followers of Jesus begin to ask questions. Now, I'm going to be the first one to tell you there is absolutely nothing wrong with asking questions. Faith is not about having all of the answers. Uh, in fact, people who have all the answers make me nervous. It's true. People who have all the answers make me nervous. Because I like to ask questions. <laughs> um, our enemy prefers people who think they have all the answers and don't ask questions. People who have questions and who keep on trusting God terrify our spiritual enemies. Pastor Eugene Peterson put it this way, the Bible isn't interested in whether we believe in God or not. Have you ever noticed the way the Bible starts? It doesn't start with, hey, now I need you to understand that these are the reasons you need to believe in God. If you open up the Bible and you go to the very first sentence of what the Bible says, it just says, in the beginning, God. There he is. God exists. It, God, the Bible does not Care doesn't isn't interested in whether we believe in God or not. It assumes that more or less everybody does. What the Bible's interested in and what God is interested in is the response we have to God. Will we let God be God as God is? Majestic and holy, vast and wondrous. Or will we always be trying to whittle God down to the size of our small minds? Insisting on confining God within the boundaries where we are comfortable with. How will we respond to God? Will we take God as God is? Or will we try to find, define God into something we're comfortable with? The reason so many, so many people in the last few years have been asking questions is some of us see a vast chasm between Jesus' teachings and his life and the lives and teachings of so many in the church, in the 21st church in North America. And we've been thinking there has to be more than what we see here and now. Now, where are you going with this? I'm glad you asked. For those of you who think I'm on a rabbit trail, I'm not. We'll bring this together in a moment. 
I want you to understand there are dangers in asking questions. There's no problem in asking questions, but there are dangers in asking questions because the enemy likes to use them as an opportunity. Some of the dangers in asking questions is the enemy likes to use the question to distract us by secondary issues. What do you mean by secondary issues? Well, I'm glad you asked that question too. Secondary issues are, uh, well, first of all, um, a secondary issue would be anything that isn't involved, doesn't involve the two great commandments, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. If it's not in those two commands, it's not a primary issue. Well, I'm pretty sure that I can make it. If you have to force it in there, it isn't, okay? For some, that might be too narrow. If it's not in the two great foundational creeds of the church, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, it's probably a secondary issue. Doesn't mean it's not important. It's just not primary. And we could get distracted by secondary issues. Those are dangers in asking questions. Another danger is that we can be disappointed by the behaviors and decisions of other people and let those dis disappointments by what other people are doing to get us off track. We can be discouraged by the pain and suffering we and others experience and get off track from following Jesus. We can be disillusioned by what we perceive as unfulfilled promises because sometimes, sometimes well-meaning pastors, probably even this one, have Overpromised even God's word and under and made mistakes there. Some of us have despair, have end up with despair, thinking nothing's ever going to change. Some of us end up being drained, exhausted, have jaded faith. It's just too hard. Some folks end up drifting away. The enemy's ultimate goal is people who don't drift away. It's people who do, who stay. They just don't believe. And they just don't trust Jesus. So how can Jesus' disciples stand the attack of evil, these evil forces that are trying to keep them from truly following Jesus, from truly believing God? How did Jesus face the spiritual battle? Jesus had a spiritual battle, more than one. His whole life was a spiritual battle. How did Jesus face his spiritual battle on the night before his crucifixion? 
at the beginning of that long spiritual battle, I knelt down and prayed. <coughs> Jesus knelt down and prayed, he tells us. He knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer, he went back to the disciples. He found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. By the way, that is not the first time that night that Jesus mentioned prayer to them. On reaching the Mount of Olives, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. When he told them that Satan wanted to sift them, to pick them apart, Jesus added, but I have prayed for you. And here he goes again. He says, wake up and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. When I was in school, my teachers always told me, if you told us, if you if it's on, if I say it three times, it's going to be on the test. I don't know if that's exactly true when Jesus says it, but I'm going to say if he says the same thing three times within like an hour, it's probably on the test. You better pay attention. We better pay attention. How can Jesus' disciples stand the attack of evil spiritual forces? Jesus said they needed to pray and overcome the time of testing. Jesus prayed, not my will, but yours be done, to keep from falling in his time of testing. We can stand firm in our day of testing when we pray as Jesus prayed. We have to pray, not my will, but yours be done. We must pray as Jesus prayed. Not my will, but yours be done. And that is not easy. It wasn't easy for Jesus. Other accounts tells us, Luke indicates that Jesus prayed multiple again and again, but he don't, we don't know how often. But other gospel accounts tell us he prayed three times. He woke his disciples up three times and went back and prayed this prayer three times. If Jesus has to pray three times, not my will, but yours. I'm pretty sure it's going to take us way more than that. We fall into a trap if we approach all of our prayers as a call bell to ring to receive God's services. We will be disappointed when God doesn't do what we want when we want it. Because prayer isn't a call bell. 
all the time. We've asked this question before, and I want us to keep thinking about what if prayer is about creating space for us to know Jesus better and to become more like him? What if the primary goal of prayer is to connect with Jesus and to develop a stronger relationship with him? In any case, do you know anyone who likes to be treated like a call bell to be rung for service all the time? Since prayer isn't a bell to ring when we want service, it is a relationship to pursue. So how do we pray? We have to pray the way Jesus prayed. We have to pray, not my will, but yours be done. His prayer was a prayer of surrender and trust. And so that brings us to the sermon in a sentence. This is what I want you to remember. The, the prayer of surrender sets true trust apart. He's not going, I've got faith, Jesus. You've got to do what I tell. Maybe none of you have ever heard anybody pray like that. I certainly hope. but I have. I've always been uncomfortable with that. Like, like somehow your faith is something you can beat Jesus into submission with. The dude is the king of kings and lord of lords. I don't think he really is. Never mind. I'm just saying, true, the prayer of surrender sets true trust apart. If I really believe God, if I really trust Jesus, then I can say, not my will, but yours be done, and believe that the best things are going to be happening. No matter what it looks like from the, my side of things, in the end, the best things are going to be happening. Pastor J.D. Walt, you know, I... I love him, and I quote him often. He writes, we must grasp the difference between resignation and surrender. There is a difference. He says the difference is four words, and they make all the difference. And the words are a prayer, another prayer Jesus prayed, Father, glorify your name. To resign is to turn back, to give up, to admit defeat. To surrender means to abandon yourself, not to circumstances, but to God. And to embrace the glorious future of God's making. Surrender is not acceptance of defeat, but de declaration of victory, no matter how dark the future may appear.
So that got me thinking. So I came up with a list. Surrender declares not my will, but yours be done. Surrender believes God and what God promises. Surrender trusts God's love, wisdom, and power. Surrender says, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. Surrender takes a lifetime of persistent and prevailing practice. Surrender is not the recognition of defeat, but the proclamation of victory. We need to ask God for the grace to desire his will. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. We have to pray personally and collectively the way Jesus prayed. Not my will, not our will, but yours be done. So, this is an invitation. For each of us and all of us to make a decisive surrender and submission of our entire lives to Jesus, our King of Kings. I'm borrowing a prayer from uh, Folks in the recovery movement. And it's an expanded version of the serenity prayer. It goes like this. God, give me the grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed. Courage to change the things which should be changed the wisdom to distinguish the one from the other. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as the pathway to peace, taking as Jesus did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, Trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen. In other words, King Jesus, Not my will, but your will be done. Amen. Let's sing an old song. I'm running through my head for a while. Mm -hmm.
Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to you. Jesus, whatever comes our way, whether our lives are longer or shorter than we've hoped, we surrender ourselves to your faithful love. Give us the courage and joy to remain always true as we follow you. Amen. Folks, you are sent.
Go with Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. Change the world. Well, don't just sit there.